Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Della Porta, your guide on this journey through health. This is episode five. And before I jump into our material, I want to thank each and every one of you who is taking the time to listen and learn about the psychosocial aspects of health. I appreciate your time. I'm excited to share this information with you, and I hope you are finding this podcast both entertaining and informative. If you are enjoying the podcast, please give it a good rating and leave a comment. That helps me better reach more people with this useful information. On today's episode, I am talking about how relationships are connected to health. This is another timely topic given the pandemic and public health recommendations that place constraints and pressures on our relationships. It is also a very touchy subject. Most of us are struggling with how to best meet our needs for social connection while also being responsible members of our communities and limiting physical contact to reduce the spread of the virus. Tensions are running high over what should be done to handle the situation. To make matters worse, a very visible and vocal minority of our population continue to deny the realities of the pandemic and refuse to abide by the public health mandates. I want to start this topic by extending my sincerest empathy to all of my listeners, each of whom I know has had to make serious sacrifices and adjustments in their relationships over the past year. I want you to know that I am with you in this, and I too am grieving the time and experiences I lost when I chose to limit my contact with others to help protect my family and community over the past year. Please know that I do not take this loss of contact lightly. I hope this episode helps you better understand relational issues and empowers you to take some steps to improve your relational health. It is actually quite fitting that our current situation highlights the interconnected nature of our health. As you will hear today, we have known for decades the importance of meaningful and supportive relationships to health. And we have also shown that dysfunctional or negative relationships can pose a risk to our health. Long before we ever had to worry about how our contact with others might spread a novel deadly virus, researchers have been demonstrating that being connected to others impacts health in significant ways. How do we know that relationships matter to health? What have we learned about the pathways that connect relationships to health? Importantly, how can we prioritize our own relational health while also being socially responsible and protecting the health of our local community during this difficult pandemic? In 1979, the first study demonstrating the importance of social relationships to health outcomes was published in the American Journal of Epidemiology. This paper reported the results of a nine-year prospective study that followed a random sample of 6,928 adults, finding 
that people who lacked social and community ties were more likely to have died at a nine-year follow-up. For the health psychology community, this was a bombshell discovery. We definitely wanted to learn more about why people reporting a greater number of social ties would be less likely to have died by the follow-up. Could it be due to some other factor, or was it really the relationships making a difference in health? When researchers are curious whether some third variable might be driving the observed relationship, they control for those variables and see if the relationship still exists. Without getting too much into the statistics, suffice it to say, we can mathematically determine if any of the variables that were collected can explain the relationship we are most interested in. For example, maybe people with a greater number of social ties were healthier at the start of the study, or perhaps people who are lonelier are more likely to drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes. We can examine this by controlling for health at baseline, drinking, and smoking. Very interestingly, the association found in 1979 between social ties and mortality held even when researchers controlled for self-reported health at baseline, socioeconomic status, and health behaviors like smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol. This indicated that perhaps social ties themselves were meaningfully connected to health. After this study was published, many follow-up studies examining various populations replicated the finding that people with a greater number of social ties have a lower mortality risk and are at lower risk for a variety of health problems. People with a greater number of social ties have been found to be more likely to survive a heart attack, less likely to be depressed, less susceptible to infectious disease, and less likely to have a recurrence of cancer. The evidence that social ties matter to health outcomes is highly convincing. What then have all these studies shown us? When multiple studies have been done on the same topic, we can combine the results statistically to have a more comprehensive view of the relationship. This is called a meta-analysis. Meta-analyses looking at studies examining social relationships and health have found that its impact on mortality is comparable to classic health risk factors like exercise and cigarette use. We have every reason to believe that the quality and quantity of our connections to others impacts our health as much as typically identified health behaviors, like being active and not smoking. But how many people think of improving relationships when they set health goals? How many people would think of being lonely as a threat to health similar in magnitude to smoking cigarettes? In fact, one study found that social isolation is a risk factor for disease on par with smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's high time we view having supportive, meaningful relationships as a key component of healthy living. One big question is whether this association between relationships and health is due mostly 
to the positive benefits of good relationships or the negative impacts of bad relationships and loneliness. That is, do we see this association because good relationships are really good for your health or because bad relationships are really bad for your health? The answer is it appears to be both. Good, healthy relationships with a variety of others appear to be protective to our health. On the other hand, social isolation and dysfunctional relationships can negatively impact our health. Therefore, we need to think about both aspects, how good relationships promote good health, while a lack of relationships or bad relationships can harm health. There is evidence for both positive and negative relationship dynamics being important to health outcomes. We need to think in more nuanced ways about relationships. This is an important kind of social intelligence. One of the more intriguing findings to me is that people who have more diverse social networks show better health outcomes. It is not simply a matter of how many social connections we have, but the diversity of those networks matters. I'm not talking about racial diversity, though I highly encourage racial diversity in your social networks as well. Here, I'm referring to a factor that researchers call social integration. Social integration refers to how diverse your social connections are in terms of how and from where you know different people. For example, you might feel close connections to a romantic partner, members of your family, friends from high school, friends from college, friends from church, friends from work, and friends from a hobby you do. This would be a very diverse social network. It would be high social integration. On the other hand, you might only be close to a romantic partner and friends from church. This would be a much less diverse social network or low social integration. Interestingly, the diversity of social networks appears to matter above and beyond the sheer number of social ties we have. When it comes to health, it's not just about how many people you have relationships with. It's also about the number of ways and places you make connections with others. It's called social integration because it reflects how integrated a person is with their surrounding community. The person who can make friends wherever they go is very socially integrated. We know beyond a doubt that relationships matter to health. What have we learned about the pathways connecting relationships to health? Across a variety of studies, we have learned some of the details about the different ways relationships can impact how we think, feel, behave, and even how our bodies respond to stress. Here, I will highlight some of those findings. One particular aspect of relationships that has been found to be very important to health is perceived partner responsiveness. This refers to the degree to which a person feels their partner understands and appreciates them. People who feel like their partners better understand and appreciate them report better sleep 
and have a lower risk of mortality. This indicates that one thing to look for in healthy relationships is a person who makes you feel appreciated and understood. It is worth making an effort to really be seen and known by your friends, family, and romantic partners. Not only does this give your relationships greater depth and meaning, it appears to be protective to health. Another important aspect of relationships was identified in a recent study examining romantic partners. Researchers found that the degree to which people believed their relationship offered an opportunity to grow in the future was important to health outcomes. Whether we think our relationship will promote our own personal growth is called relational self-expansion. This study found that relational self-expansion was associated with self-reported health through emotions. People who believed their relationship was an opportunity for personal growth reported better health, primarily because they were experiencing more positive emotions and fewer negative emotions. These findings indicate that when we view a relationship as being an opportunity to grow as a person, we are likely to feel more positive feelings and fewer negative ones, ultimately leading to feeling healthier. It's worth considering whether you view your relationships as opportunities to grow as a person. It might help you shed light on why you feel more positive or negative feelings about particular relationships. Many times in life, we are actively trying to adopt healthier habits. What happens when people we have relationships with do not really support our health goals? Or problems in the relationship interfere with our ability to accomplish our goals? There have been several studies examining how relationship dynamics impact health behaviors in the context of weight loss. Findings indicate that social support is very helpful when we are trying to make healthy behavior changes regarding weight loss. On the other hand, poor relational dynamics can impede our ability to change. Relationship researchers have identified two key dynamics of relationships that represent what they call relational turbulence, which is quite literally an attempt to gauge the magnitude of how rocky a relationship is. Relational turbulence can impede our ability to adopt healthier habits. It can prevent us from being able to change behaviors. The two dynamics that make up relational turbulence are relationship uncertainty and being interrupted by our partner. Relationship uncertainty refers to our certainty about our own involvement in the relationship, our partner's involvement in the relationship, and how much lasting potential we see in the relationship. Interruption refers to ways our partner might interrupt our progress toward our goals. Relational turbulence has mostly been studied within romantic relationships, 
But the same dynamics could apply to many different kinds of relationships, including close friendships. When we perceive a relationship as uncertain, we are more likely to feel that it interferes with our ability to make healthy changes. When we feel more certain, we tend to feel that the relationship facilitates healthy changes. It's worth considering how much certainty you feel about your involvement, the other person's involvement, and the future of the relationship when thinking about how a particular relationship might impact your health behaviors. If you feel uncertain about your relationship, it may be negatively impacting your ability to pursue healthier habits. With regard to interruptions by our partner when trying to make progress toward goals, this can happen in a variety of ways. Our romantic partner, close friend, or family member might place very real and tangible barriers in our way. For example, if we are trying to lose weight and live with a person who stocks our cupboards with junk food and sweets, we will find it much more difficult to change our eating even when we stop buying those things ourselves. The emotional dynamics of relationships can also impede our progress toward health goals. When our relationship is causing us stress, this can make it difficult to stick with healthy behaviors like eating well. In fact, our bodies crave sugars and fats after we experience fight or flight. In this way, having a relationship that causes you frequent stress can make achieving goals related to healthy eating much more difficult. Another important thing to consider is how we communicate our needs for social support to our loved ones. Social support has been associated with an improved ability to make healthy changes and with better health outcomes, but not all relationships provide good social support. Most of the time, we must express our needs to our relationship partners in order to receive the kind of support we need. It is incredibly difficult for another person to intuitively know how to support us unless we can accurately communicate what we need from them and why. Over time, our relationship partner can learn to know us and better predict how to best support us without the same necessity for such clear communication. But this only happens when a person has been able to effectively communicate their relational needs early on. Getting social support for our health behaviors involves communicating our goals to others, gauging how supportive they are of those goals, trying to elicit supportive behaviors from the other person, and trying to subvert or avoid any opposition from the other person. Let's break that down. First, we must let the other person know we have a goal to change a behavior in order to be healthier. This means stating our goal, let's say to eat fewer sweets, and state why we want to change that behavior. So here it's to lose weight. If we perceive that the other person does not support our goal in the first place, we will disengage from seeking their support in this goal. Expressing our goal 
and need for support to another is a vulnerable thing to do. And when others do not support us, this can actually damage the relationship and reduce emotional intimacy. For this reason, many people avoid telling their loved ones about health goals in the first place in order to avoid potentially damaging the relationship. When we are able to be vulnerable enough with another person to tell them our health goals, and we believe the other person genuinely supports our goal, we will try to either get direct help from the other person or try to prevent them from placing any obstacles in our way or both. If we think the other person will be our cheerleader and especially if they are willing to make behavioral changes alongside us, this is perceived as highly supportive. On the flip side, if the other person clearly goes out of their way to avoid placing any obstacles or barriers in the way of our goal, that is also seen as being supportive. Relational turbulence drives whether and how we will communicate our needs for social support, our certainty about the relationship and perceptions about how much the other person might interrupt our goal progress, both shape the likelihood of seeking social support. If we feel uncertain about the relationship or already believe they will interrupt our progress toward our goals, this will make us less likely to seek social support from them. Thus, greater relational turbulence can negatively impact health by inhibiting our ability to garner social support from others. Thus far, I have talked about emotional and behavioral pathways from relationships to health. There are also biological pathways. Some of these pathways are set into motion in childhood based on relationships with primary caregivers. One recent study found that people whose parents showed greater emotional warmth during their childhood had better resting heart rate variability in adulthood, and heart rate variability in adulthood predicted later occurrence of heart disease and mortality. This means that people whose parents were warmer when they were children went on to have less variable heart rates in adulthood and adults with less variable heart rates were less likely to go on to develop heart disease or die. This highlights the lifespan perspective, that trajectory that I discussed on the hella complex episode of this podcast. Children who are exposed to very stressful childhood experiences have been shown to be at much higher risk for health problems later in life, even showing higher mortality risk. The pathways linking stress to health are complicated as we discussed in our Hella Stressed episode. The study just mentioned demonstrates that one biological pathway is through differences in adult heart rate variability. People who experience stressful childhoods become sensitized to threat signals and are more easily triggered into the fight or flight response as adults. This leads to greater allostatic load, more wear and tear on the body because of a repeated or prolonged stress response. In turn, 
the greater allostatic load puts people at risk for disease and early death. Relationships with our primary caregivers significantly shape the trajectories of our lives. One way this happens is by instilling in us a particular attachment style. Attachment theory states that people whose parents are warm and responsive and let them explore safely while gently guiding and giving freedom to grow become better adjusted adults due to having what we psychologists call a secure attachment style. When parents are appropriately responsive and give their child a safe space from which to explore the world and develop independence, this facilitates positive development and instills a style of relating to others that is emotionally healthy. Being securely attached comes from having warm, responsive parents and being allowed to explore and develop appropriate independence, which equips people with healthy emotional patterns and promotes positive relationships with others. People whose parents were inappropriately responsive or unresponsive will grow to be anxiously attached, avoidantly attached, or ambivalently attached. Anxiously attached individuals have a high degree of anxiety around relational issues. Every bond with another person is a source of stress for the anxiously attached individual. An avoidantly attached individual, on the other hand, remains aloof and avoids any real emotional intimacy with others. Avoidantly attached people keep up emotional walls and never let others get too close to them. People who are ambivalently attached show a mixed pattern of anxious and avoidant attachment styles. Childhood appears to be a particularly vulnerable time for us, setting us upon a trajectory that will either make healthy behaviors much easier and become self-reinforcing over time, or that will become a growing mountain of obstacles that eventually form a seemingly impenetrable barrier to healthy behavior. Research shows that people who are blessed with great parents in childhood or other great caregivers form a secure attachment style, and adolescents who show secure attachment styles report engaging in healthier behaviors. People who have healthy, secure attachment develop other healthy patterns of behavior. On the other hand, adolescents whose parents were not responsive or were overly involved, perhaps even neglectful or abusive, carry with them an unhealthy style of relating to others, which feeds into a cycle of unhealthy behaviors. Each of us is on a particular trajectory placed in motion in our childhood. We can shift this trajectory, but we must acknowledge its momentum. Good relationships promote better health and bad relationships threaten our health. But the evidence indicates that being lonely poses the greatest risk to our health. Loneliness is one of the greatest health threats facing people today. A large proportion of Americans surveyed 
report feeling lonely, usually around 25% of people surveyed. This number is even higher in older populations. People who report being lonely are at greater risk for disease and have an increased mortality risk. Furthermore, the magnitude of the impact of loneliness on health appears to be greater than the magnitude of the effect that good relationships have in protecting health. In other words, fostering positive relationships will likely protect your health, but it is even more important to raise a red flag whenever you feel lonely. Strong feelings of loneliness should never go ignored. What does it mean to be lonely? Is that not just another way of saying that the person has no or few social ties? Not necessarily. Even people with many social ties can feel lonely. Loneliness is not so much about the number of people we are connected to, but rather it is a reflection of the quality and meaning of our relationships. People who feel deeply and meaningfully connected to other people do not feel lonely. That is the inverse of feeling lonely. That is feeling connected in the truest sense. Therefore, when we reflect on our relational health, we must be honest about how meaningful our relationships are. It is not sufficient to spend time with or talk to others if doing so does not lead to greater depth and meaning in the relationship. Sadly, feeling lonely triggers our brains into a response pattern that leads to greater loneliness. Let me explain. People who feel lonely are perceiving a social threat, which triggers a part of our brain that responds to threats called the behavioral inhibition system. This system signals us to move away from things and avoid anything new because we want to avoid additional threats. When the behavioral inhibition system is triggered, we withdraw and anything novel starts being perceived as a threat. The lonely individual's brain tricks them into fearing new things including new relationships, because it is wired to perceive new things as threatening. This creates a genuine barrier to social connection and ends up compounding the person's loneliness. Lonely people avoid the new situations required to build relationships, making tackling loneliness quite tricky. As a side note, this behavioral inhibition system gets triggered whenever we perceive a threat. Therefore, it is also part of the stress response that I talked about in detail on the Hella Stressed episode. There is evidence that a good portion of the association we see between relationships and health is driven by poor health outcomes in the loneliest segment of the population. It has been argued that loneliness can be seen as a true public health threat. Just this month, the Japanese government appointed a minister of loneliness to tackle the growing problem of loneliness in that country. 
and hopefully mitigate the threat it poses to their citizens' health. Unfortunately, our evidence for the importance of relationships to health is vast, while the evidence we have for what works to decrease loneliness is much sparser. In general, we know a lot more about how strongly relationships are associated with health outcomes and much less about how we can improve relationships. Interventions aimed at reducing loneliness in the most vulnerable segment of our population, which is older adults, have been inconsistent in their approach and quality. Likewise, interventions to improve relational aspects of health, like decreasing relational turbulence or increasing social integration, are also lacking in their quality and quantity. One of the most problematic aspects of this research area is a lack of naturalistic interventions, meaning most studies have been carried out in the laboratory or another artificial setting, and they do not reflect people's real-world experiences. Many studies try to improve social health by forging connections between strangers who are randomly assigned to one another, when what most of us really want to know is how we can improve the relationships we already have and how to make meaningful connections with people in our own communities. I want to give you an example from my own life that speaks to how hard it can be to forge authentic, meaningful relationships with others, even those within your perceived in-group. Shortly after I became a stay-at-home mother, I moved across the country to a place I had no friends. Luckily, I was able to find a variety of groups on social media that were specifically aimed at connecting moms to one another to help us get support from each other and avoid feeling isolated. Unfortunately, I found it incredibly difficult to really connect with other moms in these groups or the moms I met through church or in my neighborhood. Why was I finding it so hard to forge real friendships with other women who were in such a similar position as myself? Shouldn't it have been incredibly easy to connect with them? I'm going to tell you something about motherhood culture that all the moms listening will immediately recognize because it has seeped into so many aspects of our lives. Mothers today are given so many messages that make us feel like we must be all things to all people, that all the parenting answers are easily available to us and any mistake we make reflects either our own incompetence or the fact that we are incredibly selfish and don't love our children. Combine this with social media and you have a recipe for disaster. Increasingly, I could not even ask questions or give advice on these platforms because each group had become extremist in its own approach to parenting. It got to the point where simply expressing support for another approach could trigger a pile-on of responses accusing you of being a terrible mother who ought to know better. I watched this happen to myself and others until I could no longer see any benefit in these groups, so I left. With regard to my in-person interactions I had with other moms, other dynamics placed barriers to forming real relationships. 
One barrier was the constant mom talk about parenting choices and our kids' behavior that on the one hand helped us build camaraderie, but on the other hand reinforced the notion that all there was to us as women was the fact that we were mothers. Constant discussion of mothering helps us not feel alone in our struggles or successes, but it also makes it challenging to share our full and authentic selves. I would find myself engaged in many of the same types of conversations about parenting, then come away wondering how I could possibly bridge the gap to a more meaningful relationship with these women. These kinds of interactions start to feel empty if that's all there ever is to the relationship. Forming real, deep, meaningful relationships with others requires being vulnerable about ourselves and showing empathy to one another. The motherhood culture I described promotes shallow relationships marked by shame and judgment, making sharing our flaws and weaknesses feel quite scary. But if we never share our struggles or only share the struggles we know are common while avoiding the deeper, messier ones, we will fail to deepen our connections with others and build the true meaning we desire in our relationships. When we hide our real selves, we can never get the social support we need from that relationship. We know that a greater number of relationships is associated with better health outcomes and lowered mortality risk. We know that people with higher quality relationships show better health outcomes and lower mortality risk. We know that people who have greater social integration, meaning their social networks are more diverse, have better health outcomes and lowered mortality risk. We know that things like relationship certainty and how much our partner understands and appreciates us explains some of the pathways from relationships to health. We know that loneliness poses a particular risk to our health. What does all this really mean for you when it comes to your relational health? There is an easy exercise I like to do that helps people identify their social connections and how close they feel to others. If you would like to try it, pause this episode and go grab a blank piece of paper along with a pen or pencil. Okay, once you have the paper and pen, place a dot in the center of the paper and label it with your name. This dot represents you. Now, starting with your dot as the anchor, place dots around you representing people you feel close to. The closer a dot is to your own, the closer you feel to this person. Their dot can even overlap with your own. Each dot should be labeled with the name of the person it represents. Pause the episode and do that now if you wish. This is a very similar technique to the one researchers use to measure the closeness of people's social networks. They measure how far the different dots fall from the person's own dot and calculate a number that captures it. For our own purposes, 
you can use your completed paper as a way to begin reflecting upon your relational health. You have now identified key people in your social network. First, how many close relationships did you list and how close did you place those people's dots? This tells you some things about the quantity and quality of your relationships. Second, from where or how do you know these people? Is there much diversity there? This tells you about your level of social integration. Third, thinking of each relationship, consider some of the relational dynamics that might impact your health. Is that relationship characterized by social support? Do you feel understood and appreciated? Is this a turbulent relationship? Do you experience a lot of stress or anxiety about the relationship? Does this relationship make it harder or easier to pursue your health goals? The answers to all of these questions will deepen your understanding of your relational health and help you identify ways you might improve it. One of the things I am most passionate about is being vulnerable and authentic with others to improve relational health. It is important to find the right people and circumstances where we can be our true selves, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. This is the only way to successfully develop depth and meaning in our relationships and get all the benefits of social support. Notice I said with the right people and in the right circumstances. Thanks to the success of teachers like Brene Brown, whom I love, there is more and more public acknowledgement of the value in being vulnerable. But while many people are developing a greater appreciation for relational vulnerability, there's not enough discussion about how and with whom to be vulnerable. Not everyone deserves your story. Being vulnerable with another person is a gift you give to yourself and the other person. If that gift is given to the wrong person or in the wrong situation, it can be abused. We must use discernment about being vulnerable or we will end up getting burned by it and learn to avoid it fervently in the future. You want to find others you can trust and who are good at showing empathy. Never share too much of yourself with a person who will dismiss you or who might later use your private information against you. Look for people who share your personal values. Relationships give our lives meaning and, as it turns out, greatly impact our health and longevity. I have only scratched the surface of what we know about how relational dynamics impact health. I hope you are convinced by this growing body of evidence that relationships are vital to health and are worth carefully considering. The next time you think about your health, think about the health of your relationships. If ever you feel lonely, this should signal to you that something is amiss and motivate you to find ways to derive more meaning from your relationships. Finding people you can be your authentic self with 
as well as people you are not too ashamed to show your weaknesses to, can help you build more meaning and feel more deeply connected to others. This is just one example of how you can improve your relational health. Today, the pandemic and the public health guidelines that go along with it place additional obstacles in our way of improving relational health. Luckily, we live in an age where people can use technology and be creative in connecting with others. But being in the physical presence of others is wonderful. I hope that each of us is able to be a part of a group of individuals who can have direct, exclusive contact with one another. In other words, a bubble. I have been bubbling with my husband and kids, along with my in-laws who live nearby. Six of them, four of us, 10 people in total. I am very grateful that we align on which behaviors and risks we are comfortable with, and that I can trust them not to have direct contact with anyone outside our bubble without first informing us. If that happens, we simply quarantine from them for two weeks before having direct contact again. In addition to the few people you can have safe, direct physical contact with, there are other ways you can connect with people and still slow the spread of the virus. Outdoor activities have proven to be quite safe with fewer than 10% of cases being linked to outdoor gatherings, and a portion of those 10% being linked to indoor-outdoor mixed gatherings. If you are unable to remain six feet apart, it is still recommended that you wear a mask even when outdoors. You can also connect through technology, like I mentioned earlier. I know many of us feel burnt out on screens and crave in-person contact. I get that. But try improving your connections through technology by seeking more authenticity and meaning, even in your digital interactions. This might help you get more true social support in using things like social media or devices that allow you to communicate using video chat. That's it for today's topic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hella Healthy. I hope you will join me for the next episode where I will discuss theories of behavior change and what we know about how people can effectively change their health habits. Most of us have one or more health goals, but many of us struggle to change our ingrained habits to achieve these goals. I will review findings from health psychology that help us better understand how and why some people are able to change their health behaviors so you can identify the different factors that might be helping or hurting you in your pursuit of health goals. Have a hella great day and please remember to be kind.